Hi everybody, welcome to this edition of What's Next Live. And I have the fantastic, awesome, incredible pleasure to welcome my friend Roger Martin to the show. Roger, welcome. It is great to be back, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. Yes, and the fun part about this is Roger was my very first video live interview like three years ago and we were both in this little screen and it was really grainy and the sound was terrible and i feel like we've matured into a much more virtual presentation mode yes we haven't grown older we've just matured we've matured absolutely <laughs> absolutely well you know i just want to say thank you for for those of you who know anything about my career uh Roger Martin was one of the very first uh, champions that I had when I was pursuing the Thinkers 50. Uh, he helped me with that, as well as getting me to the Drucker Forum, which is happening later this year, two bucket list items for myself, yeah. as well he's just been a great mentor and friend. So I, I was so thrilled that I heard you had a new book coming out, When More Is Not Better. And he was kind enough to reach out to say, hey, can I come back on your show? And I was like, well, you had me at hello, right, Roger? It's really easy. <laughs> So maybe for those that are watching for the first time across the multiple platforms we're on, maybe give a little bit about who is Roger Martin? Well, I've had uh, a varied career. So I, I started out as a strategy consultant, one of the crazy people who thought the world needed another strategy firm and built Monitor Company. Then I got talked into returning to my home, uh, which is Canada, uh, to become the dean of the business school there at the University of Toronto called the Rotman School of Management. And I did that for 15 years. And throughout the whole period, I, I've been writing books. This is my 12th. Uh, and uh, uh, I've now retired from, uh, uh, from being dean and, and the business school so that I can spend more time doing what I love most, which is uh, writing and advising uh, CEOs on strategy and other other things. So that's a little bit about me. But I love, I love, love, love seeing people like you, Tiffany, uh, enter the world of ideas. We 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 need good people doing that, contributing, uh, contributing their ideas. So I just loved it. when I met you and heard about what you're up to. I loved it, and that's why I'm delighted to offer whatever support I can. Oh, well, it's it it doesn't go unnoticed. Trust me, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. So let's dig into the book when more is not better. You know, it's like what a great title. Right. Because <laughs> I think we are in such a more is better consumption, consumption kind of uh, world right now. And maybe just step us through what was the genesis of you coming up with more is not better? Because I think the timing is oddly perfect. Yes. <laughs> In so many ways, like you had a little crystal ball, Roger. That's why I like you. So, so tell us about how this kind of came to fruition. Sure. So it started out, so the the early work in the book was in 2013. I actually started this research project that, uh, that the book is the result of. Uh, and at that time, I was worried about the stagnation of median family income in America. Uh, and so what made America such an economic power was for 200 years, the median family, the average family in, uh, in America uh, advanced economically 90 or 95 percent of the years. There are a few down periods like the Long Depression and the Great Depression, but by and large, that's what happened. And I saw that slowing down and just wondered, I wanted to know, was it systemic? Was it just a short-term thing and it was going to go uh, come back? Uh, or was this some, something had changed and we had to figure that out? Um, and, I, and I 
with my colleagues, did a whole bunch of uh, work on it, and then came came to this intersection uh, with uh, complexity theory. Uh, uh, and and uh, it's it's somewhat obscure, uh, but uh, a fellow named Bill McKelvey, uh, who is uh, now retired, but a UCLA Anderson uh, business professor, had taken it and applied it to business in an interesting way, and came to this conclusion that when you take a a uh, a normal distribution, right, so a bell-shaped distribution, and apply more and more pressure on it, it can turn into a Pareto distribution, you know, the 80-20 uh, kind of dis distribution. And so that's that's where the insight came from. It's, oh, oh, I wonder the distribution of income and wealth in the U.S. is getting more Pareto and less bell-shaped, less Gaussian, right? The middle class is stagnating, if not getting kind of, uh, kind of uh, smaller. Could this be from, from excess pressure that's taking something that worked one way and making it into something that works uh, another way? Uh, and that was about four years into the study. And it's, it, 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 it's, to me, it's a nice illustration of the serendipity of, of research, which is I was researching one thing kind of that was mysterious and came across another body of research. And when you put the two together, uh, the mystery became uh, increasingly uh, less mysterious and, and more obvious what was going on. Well, and I think you could apply that same thing to business, right? It's uh, not just in the socioeconomic and sort of human side of this, but on the business side. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard in a business meeting, it's kind of the 80-20 rule. 80% yeah. of our revenue comes from 20% of our customers, right? And uh, and, and then you could actually say, well, in, in anything, right? The one percenters and then the 99 percenters and then whatever it might be, right? And so for, for and even for myself, I would love to hear you describe the 80-20 rule because I think many people use it, but don't actually understand, well, what does that really mean? Sure, sure. Well, it, it comes from uh, a, f a fellow named Wilfredo Pareto, uh, who at the at the tail end of the 19th century made an observation that 20% of Italian families own 80% of the land in Italy. And that's why it, was, it became called the 80-20 rule. Uh, and people use different different terminologies, power laws uh, and the like, but, but essentially, uh, you get these kind of distributions uh, when when an effect is the cause of more of that same effect. So think about Instagram. So the the median Instagram uh, uh, person on Instagram has about 150 followers. Uh, the number one followed person on Instagram. Last time I checked, it was uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, the uh, soccer player uh, with about 218 million uh, followers. Uh, the followership on uh, Instagram is Pareto distributed. So you've got this long, long tail that goes out to 218 uh, a million, as opposed to a normal distribution, uh, the height of, of uh, adult males is normally distributed. And so the tallest male is less than uh, the, twice as tall as the median male. In, in, uh, in Instagram followership, 
right? The, the uh, most followed is a million times more uh, followed uh, more than a, a, a median person. So that's what, when they talk about the long tail, that's the long tail. The tail keeps getting longer and, and longer. Uh, and it's because the effect, so how do you choose who to follow on Instagram? You check how many followers they have. So the effect, having followers, is the cause of still more of that effect, right? And you get this extension. And, and in business, right, winning business that somebody else loses makes you stronger and enables you to grow faster than that other company. And it gets Pareto uh, distributed. Wealth, what's the best way to make money? Have money. <laughs> <laughs> the old, the old, uh, right. the old edge. and and so uh, so those when you have a situation where an effect is the cause of more of the effect, you get this kind of distribution, and that comes when you have more competitively intense environments, when there's so much pressure on the environment for uh, for efficiency, uh, you get those uh, uh, more so when there's a little bit less you get something that's more more uh, normally distributed. And so do you think, so, and that was fantastic. So I just want to pause for a second and say, we've got people visiting us today from, so thank you everybody for telling us. We've got Ottawa, Canada, of course, because Roger's Canadian. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we've got London and Delaware and Denver and Italy and Switzerland. So fantastic. So please put your questions for Roger uh, below and I'll make sure I get them to him. Um, but I'm somewhere... glad we have an Italian. I'm glad we have somebody from Italy because that's of course, of course. Like, I, I'm, I'm a global trotter, right? So <laughs> this is my way. I feel like I still get to travel is vicariously through the little chat function. But so, so what you just said, there was a couple of things. One was, well, the decision you make is how many followers do you have? So then you're going to follow or how many does that person have? Or, you know, if you're going to make money, you need to have money that I, I understand that some of it is the metric or the thing we value in that metric that makes us make certain decisions. And so did something come out of this that may uh, maybe some managers are looking at the wrong sort of predictors or the wrong metrics in order to change the behavior from the 80-20? Well, absolutely. I mean, one one you know, kind of big problem is is this thing I called surrogation, right? Which is when when a, a goal gets translated into a measure and then you forget what the measure the goal was and the <laughs> measure becomes the goal itself. Right. This is this is the Wells Fargo thing as as we all, all know they defined the closeness of a customer relationship as how many accounts the customer had. And so they created these incentive systems and punishments uh, uh, systems around having more accounts per customer. Uh, and, and in due course, people in the branches just started opening accounts. They, you know, Tiffany Bova got another credit card that she never actually applied, uh, applied for. You know, uh, I, I, and, I used that example in my book, actually. Yeah. On, oh, that's right. You did. You did. I that's did. Right. And, and the name of that effort, by the way, was great. Really? So it was the eight different accounts. So talk about make it really positive. Like, let's call it great. And yeah. it was PR and then the word eight, eight. you know, right? Yeah. And it just changed the behavior. Yeah. But it, it, it is this is this thing called, it's a cool concept, not invented by me, but invented by somebody else called surrogation. So the, so the, the, 
the measure how many accounts becomes the thing itself when all it ever was was one measure of that of that thing and so uh one of the things i i say in the book is is that that managers can do better by having multiple often contradictory uh, uh measurements right so i i like southwest airlines as an example of this they not only want to be the lowest cost uh, uh airline but the best airline for both customer service and employee satisfaction right so you can't do simplistic things to an extreme to get one of those right the best way you 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 could imagine right off the top the best way to get get lower cost is to pay employees less but then you'll have unhappy employees and you and you will have failed on that on that goal so instead you're kind of forced to be creative and say well hmm how could we have happy employees and low costs ah well how about we create a create an airline where we need fewer employees to do the same things as others because we we simplify the those those tasks we have one kind of uh uh airplane uh so that uh, switching back and forth between between types of airlines is not it's not there so what they actually do is pay their employees more than their competitors uh because they can they can uh, uh use them more effectively in a in a uh, in a more effective system so that kind of getting away from the one single goal is uh, is is uh, helpful yeah and i think that lends itself to the efficiency conversation right i mean i think i'm not a fan of cutting costs to find growth uh, no. i understand if you're inefficient and there's fat on the bone like how can you improve that but how do you balance efficiency today? Because I think a lot of people listening, um, whether you're an individual contributor, a manager, or a CEO, you know, big leader, um, it's all this efficiency conversation on one side. But on the other side, it's about resiliency. So you're like, well, do I invest for tomorrow today to take advantage of some of my competitors maybe pulling back and cutting costs and getting more efficient? Or do I double down and figure out how do I build a much more resilient company while at the same time, getting more efficient. And, and I think that's really difficult. So maybe I'm guessing you've got some thoughts there. Sure, no, no, it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's harder, right? Uh, I mean, that's again, why I think we've gotten to where we've gotten, which is, which is this notion of, oh, it's easier to have one goal and then everybody aligns towards that, uh, uh, that goal. But uh, it, it turns out that that often gets, gets you in, uh, in, in trouble. And so, so I, I think part of it is just recognizing that you do actually have to do the, the, the harder thing, which is to say, I need to have, I need to not pursue efficiency for efficiency's sake. Right. You need to pursue efficiency for some end, right. That, that, that matters. Right? that would matter to to the long-term viability of your organization. So if you just say, I just want to be as efficient as possible, chop, 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 and then all the customers go away, then you don't have a resilient fit for the future uh, organization. Now, if you don't pay any attention whatsoever and you have, you're, you're, uh, have costs completely out of con uh, control, the customers will go away because you're going to have to charge them too much. But here's where I like, I, I like uh, Costco, right? Costco knows just like every other retailer, you know, how many people you have to have on the store floor to serve a given amount of, of customers. And so they calculate that and their competitors calculate that. 
and then uh, Costco just adds a slush factor, right? <laughs> they just say, we're just going to have more, right? Not, not twice as many, but 15 or 20% more. Right. And then our customers are going to say, man, I love this place. Right. Because I can always get somebody to help me. And that person won't be rushed uh, off to the next, the next person. And they'll make me feel like a valued customer because guess what? I am a valued right. customer. And so, so I, I like that kind of thinking, which says, which says we have to understand what efficiency is, right? But then don't obsessively pursue it, right? Figure out, figure out what amount of that efficiency is good and when more is, is no, longer, no longer better because efficiency is not in and of itself a goal. It is an enabler of a goal. And in the case of Costco, it's the goal is we want customers to get great value and love us more than anybody else. And they've it, accomplished that and hooray, look, look how successful they are. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that the, the thing that was interesting in everything you just said was the connection between, you know, the employees don't feel like they're, you know, they're underserving customers, right? Like they don't want to show up to work and be like, oh, there's no one on the floor. I'm pulled in a hundred directions that there's enough people to serve the customers because that's what's important, right? The customers feel like they're getting, even though it's a discount store, right? Or a warehouse yep. store, they're getting yep. a really high touch experience when they're there. You know exactly what you're going to get every time you go in there. And that CEO would walk the floor of a, of a Costco every day of the week, almost until he retired, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Jim Senegal, absolutely. And, and also it's a, a other wonderful things like almost all managers uh, started on the floor, right? So it's it's virtually all promote from from within, and so so the company saying, you know, if you would dedicate your career to us, <laughs> we're going to dedicate ourselves to making it a a great career for you. Um, they minimum minimum wage laws are completely irrelevant to Costco. There's nobody who makes anywhere close to that little money. Not even not I mean not even in the in the in the ballpark. Uh, and and others would say, oh well, you can't be an efficient retailer uh, if you're paying above minimum wage, and they will fight hard to keep minimum wage uh, laws uh, laws down. And Costco is like, minimum wage is not not a factor on our entire landscape. Uh, uh, we don't know about it. We don't care. Uh, we pay we pay here because we we have this sense of we need to balance efficiency and resilience. Well, and not only that, uh, I'm going to weave in another topic, right, which is uh, as as uh, the CEO of the company I work for, Salesforce, Mark Benioff says, yeah. business is the greatest platform for change, right? And um, doing well by doing good and purpose over profit and the business roundtable um, is a great example of CEOs getting together to try to rethink this sort of capitalistic, you know, at all costs, like drive, don't pay our people more money get more efficient, you know, it's just, it's all in that almighty dollar. And, and how have you, especially in light of everything that's going on, how have you seen, because the book was obviously long finished before this sort of happened, um, yeah. is how, how have you been rethinking the frame of when more is not better based on what I just said and the changes from the business roundtable around this conversation, what, what have you sort of come up with? 
Sure. Well, uh, a couple of things. One, I know this is not an advertisement for Salesforce or Mark Benioff, yeah. but yeah, yeah, he is. He exemplifies the 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 notion that you can pursue multiple objectives. In fact, you need to pursue multiple objectives. And I'm glad I'm glad he's as vociferous on on the on the subject as he is because because there has been a relatively long tradition that dates back to Milton Friedman in his famous "The Business of Business is Business" New York Times article in 2000 or in uh, 1970, and Mike Jensen later on in 1976 that argued that you must have one objective function. You know, you gotta have that, or or you know, life as we know it's going to end, cats and dogs sleeping together, whatever. It's sort of like <laughs> all going to it's all going to go off the rails if uh, uh, if we don't do that. And so I do think you need voices like Marx, which just say, "Come on, really? No, you know that's dumb." And and uh, and so that that's that's uh, good leadership. Um, I mean, I I like what the business roundtable said, uh, but I'm a bit of a cr uh, critic of it. Like All right. My 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 view on people and life is that is that. Uh, if a person doesn't have a tool for doing something, they won't do it at all, right? So there was very little options trading, right? Before Fisher Black and Myron Scholes came up with the Black-Scholes option pricing uh, theorem. And then suddenly everybody could figure out what an option was worth and trading went through the roof. There's now you know trillions of dollars of options traded every day because they have a tool, right? Right. People didn't advertise online until uh, a little company called Google came up with a tool for telling you whether it was worth a damn or not. Right. <laughs> right. Like we'll tell you if there was a click. And then suddenly people said, oh, my God, I have a tool for determining whether or not the dollars I paid Google were worthwhile or, or not, because I can figure out myself what a click is worth to me, my my, my company. Right. So so. I believe that that things are not going to change on this front of sort of having uh, having multiple goals uh, and not just this sort of uh, you know kind of singular singular focus on shareholder value maxim maximization until there are tools. And I said that the day that the that the the uh, the uh, uh, new statement came out, um, and I haven't seen anything on that front from the business roundtable. And there are all sorts of people out there doing good things. I talk about one in the book, uh, Zainab Tan and, the, and uh, the Good Jobs Strategy and the Good Jobs Institute. Well, it's got a methodology for, for uh, uh, paying workers, workers uh, more and, and, and earning more. You know, B Corp, B Lab has got the, the, the B Corp certificate. There's a bunch of people, uh, various people have environmental footprint uh, uh, measure, measurements, the science-based uh, targets uh, initiative. The business roundtable should be saying to its members, we, we stand behind this set of tools. You know, we're 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 gonna we're gonna uh, gonna say these tools are tools that <clears throat> that we we uh, stand behind. And yeah, and it could also not only be tools, right? It could also be because something came out uh, a few weeks ago on what they've learned, and that was one of the biggest complaints. There was kind of no, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Do we know if it's even being successful? Is it just words? Like, what is the management that goes or the measurement? Sorry, that goes behind it. So I agree, it's Absolutely. the tools, and it's also the 
you know, it, maybe it's aligning to the SDGs from the UN, right? And saying, how are we doing as companies against those 17 SDGs? I don't know. You know, yep. is it, what is the mix up of the equality of pay and the, you know, whatever it might be, right? But I think it speaks leaps and bounds to the power of, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, right? But I, I hate using that term because it's so cliche, but it, it I think it works here. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to it. I mean, I, I I think people can be too doctrinaire about that, saying it has to be measured in some really really quantitative uh, uh, way. I think you can also measure things in in somewhat more qualitative ways. Just like ethnographic research, I think is often as powerful or more powerful than than highly quantitative uh, research. And some people say, well, yes, but you don't have a statistically significant sample, so that doesn't mean anything. Not true. Uh, it it uh, it means it means a lot, but you're you're right. I mean, again, it's it's to me all of that is part of what I think of as a tool, right? You know, yeah. in, in the case of Google, Google, it it literally was was yes. a measurement yeah. tool. Their entire the, the trillion dollar uh, market cap of that company is based on giving customers a tool for something they didn't have uh, before. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, well, we've got a question here from Stefano Papini, and you got to, Stefano, you got to tell us if you're joining us from Italy, because really, that's an awesome name. So, yes. do you yes. think capitalism? Do you think capitalism should evolve in the next future? If yes, how? It, yes, I, I, I think it needs to. I, I think, I think it needs to evolve in a in a way that that puts as much of a premium on resilience as uh, as on efficiency, um, and and I think, uh, you know, it's it's got to evolve in a way that is that is consistent with a complex adaptive system. So, uh, right now we have capitalism ma managed by governments. So let's say the U.S. is managed by by the U.S. government, Congress, uh, and they have a view, this fundamental view of the economy as a machine, and so you can figure out what perfect looks like and pass legislation that will get you to the perfection that you want, right? Well, that that's completely fallacious uh, uh, notion. Uh, there is no perfect uh, to, to be sought. There's just better. And so I think what we need is capitalism that we recognize. It's an adaptive system where whatever we do will get gamed when we put it in place, right? And and therefore we have to keep on tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and stop arguing about the perfect answer because this is one of the reasons why there are these political arguments because people say well I know the perfect answer and so I want to have my perfect answer not your perfect answer and when we do this it's going to be there forever uh, and and I think that's just a bad way to manage capitalism the better well, way to manage it is let's let's try this let's tweak it this way if it's if it's working working out well let's do some more of that if it's not working so well let's change change directions and we just don't have that dialogue at all well i love that you say stop viewing it like a perfectible machine yes and more like a rainforest yes i love yes. that so talk to us about how we can view it as a rainforest and i mean i, I like i really thought like i want to make the title of our little conversation today like view business like a rainforest right and and yeah, so right. please tell me what what you mean by that sure well i mean uh 
in a rainforest, um, if you pull a lever, right? You say, ah, we don't like that species. It's, it's eating this other species. Let's, let's figure out how to kill all of them, of that, of that species. Uh, and you think that'll make the life of these other species so much, uh, so much uh, better off, right? Chances are you're going to screw things up, you know, in 10 ways that you had no idea you were doing. It's like the stories you've heard of the wolves being re, re, reintroduced uh, to the to the parks out, uh, uh, out out west and and changing the flow of rivers, right? It, it's 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 because in a in a system like that, a complex adaptive system like the Amazon jungle, it's just not possible to know what the effects are going to be of the changes you make. So therefore, you've got to you've got to do two things. I think one, change modestly, right? I may, I may be a sort of a, you know, people think of me, uh, I'm a big thinker and I want bold strategy, strategic uh, uh, moves. But the way to get to something is to think about making it better and better and better and better. And you're never done with little tweaks. And so if we were managing it like a rainforest, uh, we'd be, we'd be uh, like the Amazon uh, jungle, we would be making tweaks not trying to say we've got a big problem and we're going to pull this gigantic lever and solve that uh, uh, that problem. That just doesn't it doesn't work that way. The human mind is not capable of of doing that. Plus, what we know about every system is is that there's adaptation, right? So you know. Uh, uh, you know, back in back in the Clinton uh, administration, the pension funds were really mad about executive compensation getting out of hand because the average executive was making a million dollars a year. CEOs, imagine that! How horrible a million dollars a year! And so, uh, and so, they passed uh, legislation to fix the problem. There's only going to be one million dollars of compensation deductible for corporate tax purposes, and that'll make sure that that uh, cor corporations don't pay more than that because it'll be really tax ineffective. And you're like, "Yay, we've done it! We've solved the problem! We've we've uh, uh, struck a blow." What happened? They just said, "Well, we got to find another way to pay them, so we'll give them stock options, right?" And within less than ten years, uh, CEO compensation had gone up ten x. 10x, right? The problem was X. X was a really big crisis problem, and the, <laughs> the fix, the fix, got them 10x as 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 the result. That's a classic example of adaptation. Is people figure out the system just automatically figures out how to exploit the new rules, and that's why you've got to you've got to say, you know what? If if that happens, we're just going to change them again. It's what happened. I, I, I call it the unintended consequence of decisions, right? The intended yep. consequence was I want to reintroduce the wolves. I want to make sure that this town has water. I want to make sure executives are not overpaid. That was the goal, right? Yep. The unintended consequence is sort of the impact of that decision has to things that people never would have thought. You know, I agree, Roger, that, you know, people, listen, I'm a, a I sold for a living. Like it was all about how do I maximize my compensation plan, right? My yep. quota, my commission, my et cetera. So I get that part of it. You know, if they're not going to tell me that I'm going to get paid to sell this, I won't sell it. I'll sell this like, yes. right. So uh, adapting in real time. Um, but we're at this point right now where we almost don't know where we're adapting towards. 
right? Yes. Uh, yes. I don't like the term new normal. Uh, I feel like the normal we left had lots of room for improvement, whether it be yes. social injustices or pay or equality, et cetera. And so I know it's going to be the future. And so I've been calling it kind of the next future. Like, and someone yes. goes, well, that's the same thing. Next and future is the same thing. I go, yeah, new and normal, I don't like. So yes. next is no, new. No, I'm yeah. I'm 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 with you. I mean, I mean, I I guess I would I would like to believe that that uh, that even though COVID has been horrible, it's killing a million people worldwide, a couple two hundred thousand in 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 the U.S. Uh, what we've got to do is say, uh, what can we learn from this that will make us better? Because otherwise, in some sense, the people all died in vain. I mean, wouldn't it be better if all of those people, you know, looking down from <laughs> from heaven uh, uh, would be saying, well, at least at least the world that I left uh, got better by learning a few things uh, from from this. So I, I, I think your your view and your approach is is noble and and uh, and that's what we should hold ourselves to. If it's just getting back to where we were, it's like, well, we just we just, you know, had a million people die for nothing. Right. I, I agree. Right. And, and it all kind of came to fruition for me. I've told this story often, but I think it brings it home. Like I'm in Los Angeles, California. I'm two blocks from Hollywood, you know, like near all the major studios. And when this first hit and everything was shut down, um, I was going to the local drugstore, um, which was still open. And the Starbucks next door was closed, but the parking lot was packed. And I was very confused. Like no one, you know, Starbucks is closed, parking lot's packed, what's going on, right? And I was driving on my way out. Sure enough, it was multiple people sitting in cars because they were getting the free Wi-Fi from Starbucks. Oh, interesting. Right? And so there was something on, on the news the other day that there were kids sitting in front of the Taco Bell in Silicon Valley trying to get free Wi-Fi so that they could go to school because, you know, they relied on that infrastructure for all yeah. kinds of things. So, I mean, you and I could go on for hours about that, but, you know, ultimately, you know, I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity for everybody listening. You know, what, what do you think the one or two things, you know, not only go buy Roger's book and read Roger's book uh, for sure, because, you know, anything he puts out, I'm all over. Um, but, but, you know, what would be the one or two things that you think, um, you would leave with our listeners today uh, around when more is not better. Sure. Well, well, uh, uh, one would be just this this personal personal thing. As it uh, as it turns out, the behavior that many of us uh, adopt, which is to uh, to fall in love with a given service like Facebook for our news feed, or Amazon Prime for all the stuff we buy we buy, or Uber to get around. Um, when when you as an individual commits a hundred percent of your purchases to uh, to that, you are contributing to the Pareto economy, right? Um, and so the the you can help out by doing uh, one little thing, right? Which is just split up your purchases, right? So it does, doesn't even mean not using Uber most of the time, right? That's fine. Just don't use it all the time. Use Lyft some, use Taxi some. Use Amazon Prime some, go to your local uh, uh, store some. Get some of uh, your news from Facebook and, and uh, subscribe to your local newspaper. You will then create a more diverse and resilient e economy and you can do it, right? 
I know it's not it's not the natural inclination. Natural inclination is to go and commit and uh, uh, to one thing. Uh, so uh, so I, I would I would say any it's it's a simple simple thing for uh, uh, for any individual uh, to do it. The other thing I would just say is is um, politically um, I I I say say the following: don't don't allow politicians of whatever stripe to play the game that they've been playing over the last 40 or 50 years, which is to, to not ask anything of you. Right. So they make promises. We encourage them to make promises, promise this, promise that, promise that, promise that, promise that, and then we'll vote for you. Uh, and, uh, and then they can't fulfill, fulfill their promises. And the reason is they can't do it by themselves. Right. So it is, it is much, much better uh, and, and I, in the book, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I try to stay as apolitical as, as pos- possible in the book, but, uh, you know, the, the guy who really, really brought this to the fore was Newt Gingrich with the con- contract with America, where he said, you vote for us in Congress and we'll do these 10 things for you. Personally, I like JFK better. Ask not what uh, your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Uh, that's in balance. Now I would say ask both. Uh, uh, but having that, having that view of, of saying, of saying to take this complex adaptive system and move it forward, everybody's going to have to contribute. And so if you just sit back and say, somebody else is going to do it, do it for me while I, while I purchase hundred percent of my stuff from one, from one supplier, you are going to create a world that you don't like. It's, it's, it's not going to be clear why that's, uh, that's happening to you. It just, it just will be. Um, so, so on, you know, that's, that's things that people can personally do. If, if you're, if you're a business leader, I would just say, don't view Slack as a, as, as a, uh, an evil, uh, zero Slack is not the right number, the right number. Uh, w Edwards Deming, the great total quality guy who now gets, uh, in some sense, people say I'm following him by ridding my system of Slack. He said the opposite. He said there's a, a proper amount of slack and it is not zero. Um, uh, educators, um, we've, we've got to stop teaching certainty, right? Think about it. Think about your entire educational experience, Tiffany. Um, I don't remember you... it. <laughs> well, let's, let's do a thought experiment. Oh, sorry, imagine... oh, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. That was my imagine, voice. Sorry. Imagine you were taking the SAT. Remember the form of the I, SAT? I remember that. Okay, good. Remember the form of it? Every question had A, B, C, D, E, right. one of which was absolutely right, and four of which were absolutely wrong. The entire education system is around teaching certainty, teaching as if, if there's a certain right answer and the rest are wrong. That, last time I checked, is not the way the world works, right? There are better answers and worse answers, right? Uh, and that's what we should be teaching. We should be teaching that there are better answers. And even if you give a better answer and do the better thing, the system is going to adjust. And so you're going to have to figure out what's the next, uh, uh, iteration of better, the next iteration of better, rather than it is your job to figure out what's right and what's, uh, what's wrong. Um, so there are, there are, and, and political leaders have, I, I, I think in, in politics, we've got to, we've got to sunset every, uh, every piece of legislation. To say this is this is this is good good for five years and then we're going to review it, and that way all the people who make a living, 
There are lots of people who make a living out of gaming legislation. Right? That's why we have $5 billion worth of, worth of uh, money spent above board. Who knows how much is below board in political lobbying. Right? Uh, and they just game the system. You know, here's where I like, I, I like the NFL. Uh, you know, the National Football League uh, has got a competition committee. And at the end of every season, the competition committee meets and, and essentially says, did anybody figure out how to game the system too effectively? And if so, we're going to tweak the rules so that we, we, we create a, their form of resilience is offense and defense in good balance so that games are interesting. Right? Right. And so if somebody comes up with an uh, offensive tweak, Right. And you're on the West Coast. Right. Bill Walsh with his famous West Coast offense figured out how to make the offense way more effective than it was before and more effective than the defense. Right. And so the NFL said, you're a good guy and you're a smart coach. You're going to the Hall of Fame. You win Super Bowls. But that's not going to uh, that's not going to convince us that we're going to let you wreck our game. And so they made rule modifications. And well, for, it's like money you know, ball and baseball, right? It's like money ball and baseball, right? Same ab- thing. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Tweak a tweak. Although, although the interesting thing, Tiffany, about baseball is baseball doesn't tweak. Baseball's only made two tweaks in the last 70 years. I meant I meant in the sense that, you know, when Moneyball kind of came out and said, do we want to go yeah. for the best player or do we want to add things together? And then everyone replicated it, right? Yes. It was like, that was Absolutely. the advantage, right? The advantage was the process. And so, yeah. I mean, I think what I got from everything you just said is small pivots every day, watching that it's a living, breathing organism and being really resilient is about being agile. But the most important thing is keep an eye on what your customers want, what your employees want. And if you can find a way, right, to be uh, create a space in your business where it, it is a platform for change in these times we're in, then I'm all for it. So. Roger, it's been fantastic having this conversation with you Uh, and to everybody, right? When More Is Not Better by Roger Martin, a dear friend, a mentor, a champion of mine. I thank you so much for spending time with us today on this episode of What's Next Live. So thank you, Roger. Thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. It It was lovely.